thank you for tuning into the Psychology Is podcast. I'm Nick, and today I'm here with Dr. Chris Ferguson, who is a clinical psychologist and professor of psychology at Stetson University in Florida, and the author of three different books, including Suicide Kings, as well as How Madness Shaped History, uh, an eccentric array of maniacal rulers, raving narcissists, and psychotic visionaries, and then also Moral Combat, the cleverly titled book Moral Combat, a play on the video game title Mortal Combat, and the, the book is about why the war on violent video games is wrong. Because Dr. Ferguson has multiple expertise, we are having a two-part conversation, and this is part one. And in this conversation, we're going to focus on how madness shaped history. So how are you today, Dr. Ferguson? Yeah, no, thanks for having me on today. This is, this is super awesome. So uh, things are mostly good. It's the summer. Uh, it's the summer in Florida, so it's hot, um, but lots of pool time and... Uh, yeah, classes are out for the most part. So that's always kind of nice to try to get some other things done. But yeah, things right, are good. Right. Do you teach yeah. over the summer? I teach an online course over the right. summer. So that's usually not as bad. Uh, right. So we're, in fact, I'm doing that now. Uh, but, uh, but you know, don't have to travel to campus, which is always a, an, an extra perk. Right. So, what's yeah. your What's your favorite class to teach? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, I, I would say some of the ones that I, I've developed a few for the for the university, and they're not like unique, like nobody else has developed them. But like you know, so I teach forensic psychology, which is always fun because I like the. That's why I got into psychology. Really, was more of these sort of silence of the lambs kind of stuff. So mm. it's a chance to sort of indulge that side of of uh, my interest. Mm. Uh, but I do have a couple classes I built around sort of media effects. So I have one um, that so Stetson likes kind of whimsical names for. Uh, we have a junior seminar and we have a freshman seminar, which is kind of just what it sounds like. One class is meant for juniors, one class is meant for uh, freshmen, and they like. Uh, these kind of whimsical names. So one is the junior seminar is Game of Thrones made me do it. You know, media effects and media effects on behavior. So it's you know, so media effects class. Uh, and the other one is Call of Civic Duty. You know, which is uh, video games and society. So that's the freshman fresh, first first year seminar. Uh, so those are always kind of fun to teach because they're obviously right like as well. Yeah, it sounds fun, and I think it's actually clever to create these intriguing course titles it's like it sounds like the title of a book and it's yeah. <laughs> and it's, you want to draw attention you want to pique the interest of the student when they read the title of the course nice okay yeah. well we don't actually watch like a lot of game of thrones in the game of thrones <laughs> class so that i always have to you know warn students of that yeah. if they're like really big fans and think they're just going to watch the show a bunch that's not actually what the class is about yeah that's funny <laughs> <laughs> I create a little bit of a attrition and a little dropout in the yeah. beginning. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Well, so I want to actually start our conversation by reading just a short passage right from the beginning of your book here and then dive in. So right here in the beginning of chapter one, you write, sometimes it takes only one mad hatter to change the course of history. Undoubtedly, societies are sometimes riven by invaders or lain low by droughts, famines, and plagues beyond their control. But occasionally, there are times when the fate of societies teeters at the crossroads between victory and ruin, glory and shame. Into these breaches, a crucial individual can step, 
guiding society down the road to grandeur or decay. Societies hope for an individual with a firm but steady hand to steer their people through the occasional rapids. Sometimes instead they get madness. Individuals with severe cognitive or mental problems or limitations. Which I think we all, we all know is true. I mean, I think we can all think of some pretty infamous maniacal leaders in the past that no doubt changed the course of history. And so in your book, you highlight some of the biographical details of some of these fig figures, including Alexander the Great, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Mao Zedong. And I'd like to, you know, have you share with us some of these details. Um, okay. And then, of course, to go into the, the psychology of why we like what allows this to happen, that some of our craziest people take on roles in leadership. Um, so I, I'm kind of making the conscious decision not to get into the conversation about exactly what delineates mental disorders from normality. That's sure. a great conversation. I've actually kind of gone there with different guests on the podcast. It's a serious interest of mine. I also heard your interview with Coleman Hughes and you talk about that in that interview. And so just making the conscious decision not to go there and just real, knowing that what we're talking about right here in this conversation are extremes, are not you know the people who may or may not have ADHD or an addiction or something, but these are those cases where the, the disorder, the madness, the insanity is unmistakable. There's no... Um, ambiguity about whether this person is insane. So these are kind of the types of figures that we're talking about. And um, I'd, I'd, I'd like to start by asking you to, to talk about Alexander the Great, if, you're, if you'd be willing here and talk to us about Alexander the Great. How was he insane? And how did he become a leader? And what was the effect of that? Yeah, that's, that's a great place to start. So he's always fun. So, you know, and I think that, you know, I think Alexander the Great in some ways probably has one of the better outcomes of some of the folks in the in the book. And then, of course, he kind of has come down through history as this great military leader. And he founded, if briefly, <laughs> this kind of like massive empire uh, mm -hmm. that was uh, of unusual size, you know, at, at, the, at the given time. So, you know, and again, the, the thing with, you know, sort of diving back into, you know, uh, going back 2,500 years in history and trying to figure out what made this person tick. Because of course, it's always somewhat speculative, you know, and I, and I try to make sure that to make that that point um, in, uh, in the book. But yeah, it it looks like, I mean, you got to kind of get the sense of like a lot of things we say, like the origins of these things tend to be both biological and, and environmental. And you had an individual who came from a line of individuals who were very, um, uh, ambitious, I guess we could say, uh, you know, his father and his mother were both very ambitious uh, to the point of, you know, we might recognize as being psychopathic, uh, you know, today. Um, and then he, and he grew up in an environment uh, that was very harsh, even though he was a very privileged individual, obviously he grew up in the household. His father was the, the king of Macedonia. So he grew up in a very privileged life. There always was this kind of, you know, sword over his head that uh, his father was a violent, 
violent man that you know they didn't always get eye to eye see eye to eye you know it's always possible he might have been assassinated at different times so so it's interesting in the in the case of a lot of these particularly these older sort of you know ancient history sort of individuals you see they come in some ways both from what we would recognize as a life of privilege at the same point an incredibly violent you know difficult uh uh unstable uh, environment uh at the same time so uh so he's developed himself into a very, you know, again, we recognize positively his ambition. He was a very ambitious individual and a very smart individual uh, and his ability to, uh, you know, employ battle strategy was, you know, for his time is amazing. Um, but also that was part of the downside is that he was a very ambitious individual. So he sort of reveled uh, in the, the victories that he achieved and was never able to settle. Uh, for what he had achieved at some point. So he pushed from um, Macedonia, which at the time was, I think I make the illusion in the book, was like Canada inv invading the United States and winning. You know, so he had to, this little country and uh, turned it into this global empire that stretched throughout the Eastern Mediterranean through India, you know, practically, you know, um, and that was an incredible achievement at the time. Um, but that's also part of, he just didn't stop, you know, he just kept going and going and going and he put himself and his soldiers and of course the people in every place that he conquered, you know, through uh, a nightmare, you know, we kind of look at it oftentimes as like this is an incredible achievement and it was, uh, but it was a nightmare for the people who were going through it, you know, in, including himself in many respects, he was a very violent man, he ends up uh, killing one of his friends in the middle of a violent argument. Uh, he ha has a lot of problems with alcohol uh, and other issues and, um, and ends up dying in his early 30s. You know, so uh, everything he achieved, uh, he achieved before most of us get out of graduate school <laughs> and was and was dead and done, you know, at, at that point. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's kind of like sometimes like the narrative around him has changed over time as historians view him. So, you know, it's just typically been viewed fairly positively, hence Alexander the Great. But of course, there is this reassessment sometimes of, you know, how much damage he did, you know, to the people he conquered, to his own soldiers, and eventually to himself. Um, and, uh, and of course, it's also interesting to think of, like, what if he had settled at some point down and tried to actually be a ruler rather than a conqueror? What would his empire have looked like? But of course, that's also the question of, well, that ne he never would have had an empire in the first place unless he had had the personality that he did, you know, the let's say the, sort of the madness that he did um you know so th those kind of factuals are sort of interesting but uh that's kind of where he was he, he kind of came from this difficult environment it's probably not unlikely that there were some genetic contributions to his personality but he became basically a raging narcissist you know and uh and treated people in his life accordingly he was a very smart one um but that's kind of where he was at and that's how he lived his life and so It's interesting, like you were just saying, the reassessment of history and how when we are in our current moment in time, looking back far in the past, um, it's easy to recognize things as being insane when at the time it was actually somewhat normal, especially given the violent, chaotic nature of most of human history. Um, you know, like, for example, him killing his friend in a violent argument, I'm sure that, you know, people reacted strongly to that. But I, I have a feeling that it wasn't quite seen as extreme as we would see it now. 
Yeah. And so this is kind of just jumping ahead to a question I was, I was going to ask at some point, but do you, in your assessment of our current day affairs, do you foresee historians in the future looking back on this time and gauging something as more insane than we see it now? Yeah, I, I mean, I think we see our current times as pretty insane. <laughs> but yeah, yeah but that, that probably, yes, almost, almost certainly, yeah. Well, we, the thing is, is, of course, we tend to judge history through our own current multi, uh, moral lens, you know, right. which is also part of sort of like the, the culture wars kind of stuff that's going on right now is what do we do with the, the founding fathers or people who right. were, like Columbus, whatever, who used, we used to think we're good, now we think they're bad, you know, so how do we kind of evaluate people, you know, differently or keeping that, you uh, in, in, in mind and, and and it does kind of help if you're judging someone to kind of consider you know what was kind of the norm back then you know and again it doesn't necessarily excuse everything that they did necessarily so murdering someone in a drunken fit is still murdering someone in a drunken fit um but, but he never got he did nobody arrested him you right. know he did it it was so there definitely was a different you know sort of moral um, worldview, you know, the humanism, that's the way we think of it today. The idea that people have basic value just wasn't a thing anywhere, you know, in, in mm -hmm. the world for the most part. And so the idea that if you had the ability to do so, that you shouldn't invade another country and take them over just was not in anybody's moral calculus mm -hmm. uh, at that time frame. It just, nobody thought it was bad uh, mm -hmm. for you to invade your neighbor. So, you know, today the idea the United States would invade Canada which we did do back in, you know, the early 1800s, you know, um, is unthinkable. Like, you know, first off, we probably don't want it, but, you know, but even if we did, you know, that would be incredibly immoral. But throughout most of history, that's what everybody did. You know, it wasn't like an American thing or a Western thing. It was the whole world did this, you know. Mm. So now we're kind of going back and reevaluating things that happen in history through a 21st century moral lens. Mm. In some ways, that's fine, you know, because I think we can still learn moral lessons from it. But sometimes it distorts what we think we know, um, particularly if we kind of focus in on, you know, I think what's happening kind of on the left is everybody's kind of focusing in on American history. And, and deservedly so, sort of pointing out some of the negative things, the horrible things that have happened in American history. We should do that. Um, but we sometimes forget that everybody did this stuff, that, that, you know, even coming out of the 18th century, in some ways, if you really want to look at the United States from the 21st century lens, it looks, it looks bad. If you want to look at the lens of everybody else in the 18th century, it looks pretty good, <laughs> you know. So, so that's sometimes what you have to kind of keep in mind is it's it's fine to sort of judge things um, by the idea that we've advanced morally, you know. Hopefully, we have, um, but it's also important to have some kind of context and humility and understanding that it just some of these things just weren't on anybody's radar 200, yeah. 2000 years ago. And the reality is, is that yes, people a thousand years from now, um, you know, assuming we haven't cook the planet or something, you know, something, something to root, completely ruin everything. Uh, we'll look back and who knows how they'll judge us. They may either think that we're doing horrible things um, or that we got too soft, perhaps, you know, and this idea that you shouldn't invade Canada. Well, you should have. It was right there, you know, um, and you actually would have had more stability, perhaps. I'll say. Yeah. So people's you know, perceptions of how things should work uh, will and do change um, over over time. And uh, 
And that's where, again, I, I sort of counsel this idea that we should be, have a little bit of humility when we look back on people in history right. and recognize that had we been born in the 18th century or the 15th century or, you know, or the, the 200s BC or BCE, um, I don't think we would have been better people, you know, uh, than some of the people that acted back then, you know. So mm-hmm. it's easy for us to think that there are these sort of universal human values that we all understand now. But we only really understood them in the last, in some cases, 50 to 70 years, you know, and uh, yeah. So, yeah. So sometimes it's good to just keep that in mind as we maybe judge people in the past. We, we would like the historians in the future to have a little bit of generosity to us when they judge us as well. Right. Right. It's one thing that came to my mind often as I was reading your book and it's coming to my mind again now is that it seems to me that societies do not exalt normal people mm-hmm. and no, and someone who's not normal uh, could be, I almost think of it as subnormal or transnormal in a sense. Like there's, there's the, there's the type of person who can act normal, but they can also in a sense um, transcend normal and, and, use their mental faculties or act in ways that are just beyond normal, but in a way that is admirable, productive, and helpful. Um, like, you know, geniuses do, and, you know, the, the Martin Luther Kings and the great leaders do. But then there's people who are not normal, but they can't seem to even um, conform to acting normal when it might be appropriate. And they too seem to be exalted because we're so intrigued by them. And so, but unfortunately that results in insane people being exalted and given opportunities to be in positions of power and influence. So that's just an, a comment, you know, a reflection. But the, the question I want to really dig into with you is the question of like, the moral, the morally neutral nature of intelligence. So many of these people you talk about, you describe accurately as highly intelligent people, incredibly strategic, interpersonally intelligent, and yet they ended up killing massive numbers of people. So they were morally, you know, bankrupt and just deranged. So. I'm curious to hear your reflections on intelligence and morality. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. So yeah, they, they do seem to be completely uncorrelated. <laughs> I think we can say that. Yeah. So, I mean, intelligence is, you know, the way that I would define it. I know there's a whole big fun, you know, issue of debating what intelligence means, but you know, just for, for today, I would say it's basically a capacity to learn, mm-hmm. right? You know, there's the ability to take information in and use it in a practical, um, you know, kind of way. So it's obviously, a good thing you want it you know and again we can have this kind of argument about what it is and you know mm-hmm. but you know i i'm not terribly convinced by the argument that it doesn't exist and that we don't need it you know sort of thing so i think it does exist and we we you want more than it's like a lot of things you know you, you generally want it if you, if you have the chance to get it and it probably does predict a lot of positive outcomes um you know it's not the only predictor but it probably predicts uh, you know job success and academic mm-hmm. success and stuff like that I seem to remember hearing somewhere that actually predicts longevity. I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but, uh, but I have heard that. Um, but yeah, I mean, but it's like, it's a tool, right? So it's like any other tool, you know, it depends on what you do with it. You know, it's like, 
it's a, like, like a car, right? You know, it's, it's useful. You want one probably in the United States at the very least, unless you live in New York City or something like that, but you want it. But then it's also the matter of what you do with it. You know, do you use it responsibly, you know, or not? Do you, and do you drink with it? You know, do you, uh, you know, drive 100 miles an hour down the freeway, stuff like that? Um, so, yeah, so what has happened is that, you know, in histories you have, uh, you know, not, not everybody who's, you know, in the, in the book is, is necessarily a genius. There are, there are a few folks in there that are, that are not, uh, but uh, certainly in terms of like the people who took control, if you will, you know, uh, whether we're talking about like Alexander the Great or your Hitlers or your Maos um, or individuals like that, that they were clearly intelligent individuals. They could absorb incredible amounts of information uh, and they used it towards a goal, but is it a goal that we would now recognize in most cases being murderous in, in those situations? You know, that was a very negative goal. And the shame, of course, is in, in some of these situations is that their intelligence, you know, allowed them to do a lot more damage than they might have done had they not been so uh, intelligent. I mean, of course, the, you know, um, uh, yeah, everybody's sort of favorite example is, is Hitler, you know, that he took, you know, a, you know, certainly a powerful nation, but one that was struggling in the early 1930s and certainly was militarily not on the level of, of uh, you know, uh, other countries around it. And uh, despite the fairly numerous shortcomings of, of uh, you know, 1930s Germany, he was able to turn it into, you know, a world-class military, you know, superpower. Uh, and made decisions, at least initially in the beginning of World War II, that most people thought were were dumb, you know. And and he made and he went with these decisions anyway. And actually, they turned out to be pretty brilliant, you know. Um, at least for time, of course. Eventually, his decision making fell apart. But um, you know, you kind of think of where Germany was in say 1932, and then look at it where it was in you know 1940 or so, uh, and it's actually really remarkable what he achieved, or even 1938. I mean, you look at, you know, he had absorbed Austria and, the, you know, most of Czechoslovakia and without a shot, you know, um, at that point. If he had stopped then, you know, there's, again, it's one of these counterfactuals. If he had had a little bit of wisdom to go along with that intelligence, if he had stopped then, probably people would look at him as remarkable, you know, um, still maybe immoral, but certainly remarkable, uh, successful leader that who greatly expanded the size of Germany. Mm. Uh, but of course, the, the person who made the took the risks uh, that got him to 1938 was still the person that would keep him taking the risk that would get him to 1945. You know, so mm -hmm. you can't separate those two individuals right. out um, to uh, you know to say that. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, you know, it's, be, being in psychology or academia, you can look around and say, well, academia or intelligence doesn't correlate with morality mm -hmm. uh, necessarily that you can see a lot of people who are very intelligent uh, in our own lives making decisions that, uh, you know, are not good faith, that are not based on any kind of ethical or moral decision making. Um, so, yeah, so it certainly is the truth that, mm -hmm. you know, individuals um, you know, are not necessarily making moral decisions based upon being intelligent. And of course, there's plenty of lesser intelligent individuals who are completely lovely human beings who make moral decisions who are ethical uh, and such. So, uh, yeah, this is not an anti-intelligence you know, screed, by the way. It's, it's a good thing, it's, but it's yeah. just like any other tool. You have to be careful what you do with it. Exactly. Aldous Huxley was once asked the question of like, what are what is indispensable to human life? And his response was, there are two indispensable things in human life, intelligence and goodwill. Intelligence without goodwill 
is apt to be inhuman and yeah. goodwill without intelligence is impotent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly what we see. What we yeah. see is that these characters that you describe in your book are not impotent. They're highly potent in their impact on the world, but unfortunately they're also inhuman. They're inhumane. They do horrible things. So they lacked the goodwill, but like, you know, and I always hesitate to describe someone as unintelligent. I'm of the mind that if you have a brain, you're intelligent. And I also recognize, of course, that intelligence is not um, distributed equally among people. But so if a person is a very good person, they have good intentions, they want to do good in the world, but they haven't, let's say, refined their capacity for intelligence, their positive impact will be limited. Right. You know, and that's why I think education is so important because you can increase the positive impact that you can have by becoming more informed, knowledgeable, and intelligent. So, yeah, there's a there's a question. There, there's something actually I, I also want to read again, a, a little passage that leads to uh, your own question that you posed that I want to hear you answer. So um, let's see exactly where it starts. So uh, you say, you know, human societies have evolved, developed codified laws, accepted that kings and queens are not above them, and developed bureaucratic checks and balances to prevent power from being centralized on any one mad personality. What can Alexander tell us about today? And then the question you raise is, have we entered a post-madness world? So in your assessment of the world and of the leaders that occupy positions of power, have we entered a post-madness world or is, are we still seeing mad people, insane people in leadership? Well, and I probably had written that line before 2020, just to be fair. <laughs> so 2020 was a rough year uh, to be sure. So, well, I mean, I'm kind of like hinting that the, the other kind of famous quote is this sort of the, uh, I and mean, I'm going to mangle it, of course, because that's what I do. Um, but this idea that like the, the arc of history bends towards justice is sort of like the other kind of similar idea that we're always sort of evolving in a positive direction. Um, and, and I would say, if you look kind of like, again, through most of history, the answer would be no. There was no evidence to say that the history was arcing towards justice. Um, you know, that again, you know, what was happening in the Roman Republic versus the Renaissance, for instance, you know, was not necessarily a straight line of morality. Um, what has seemed to happen is that, you know, this sort of philosophy of humanism evolved in, in mostly in Europe, you know, beginning in the early Renaissance and that eventually spreads. That's why we have this idea of like humans have inherent value, which is a fairly new, new worldview. That's, that, that was, that was uh, an innovation, uh, if you will. Most people across time didn't particularly think that. Um, and, and even in some parts of the world today, people don't necessarily embrace that. Um, but, uh, so that, that I, that philosophy spreading and becoming part of sort of constitutional governments and stuff so seemed to put these kind of like breaks on real madness. Um, and you can look at that, you know, in comparison to like ancient Athens, you know, during the periods where it had, you know, democracy. So it had this kind of, you know, representative or had this sort of direct democracy. It wasn't, you know, obviously some tiny percentage of, of, of uh, male adults were allowed to participate in it. But, uh, but for those individuals who were enfranchised, it was a representative uh, democracy. And, and I use it in the book as an example of a culture that went mad because democracies actually are prone to going crazy. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, and that's basically end up with mob rule. 
uh, to some extent. Um, and that's largely what happened during the Peloponnesian War with Athens is they careened from decision to decision because they just got panicky uh, about it. And a lot of those decisions ended up being pretty bad. Um, and, and in some cases, murderous. You know, they would execute people that they thought were you know, uh, undermining the war effort and stuff. Um, and so, you know, what we have is this evolution of this kind of constitutional republic, which basically the idea of a constitution is that you have these sort of, as you say, inalienable rights. You, the, the majority can't take away rights from the minority, at least in theory. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. So we can't, you know, 75% of the United States can't decide, you know what, screw Texas. You know, we're just going to nuke Texas. We're done with Texas. It's so arrogant with all their commercials where they keep talking about how Texas is great and stuff. We're just going to flatten the whole thing. You know, you just can't do that. You know, the, the Constitution prohibits that. I mean, that's a very extreme example, obviously. But, you know, okay. uh, but uh, but theoretically, you could do that in a lot of previous societies, including democratic ones. Mm. Um, you know, Athens could vote. You know, some island that you know, was a tributary to Athens. We're just going to massacre the island, teach a lesson. They could vote. They could do that, mm. you know, historically. You know, so um, I think because of that, that's put this kind of like breaks a little bit on on this, this concept of madness. But we're also seeing, I think, in these these last few years, both how that has worked. You know, in in you know, so one of the things I think has been remarkable, uh, and I'm fairly centrist, so I see issues with both the right and the left in terms of madness today. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I, I think what has been comforting is to see how much this system has worked over the last few years to prevent complete breakdown of society, if, if you will. Uh, it's, it's, you know, I, and I totally get this past few years have been rough, you know, I'm not going to downplay that, but they could have gone worse, you know, um, and they didn't, you know, so there has been this kind of stress test, if you will, on the American um, system, but it, it's, it's continually under stress. So it's still under stress on both the right and the left. And we'll see how it holds, um, you know, uh, over time. So there is that sense of, um, yes, the system has held together so far. On the other hand, I will also say that I have been impressed by the capacity of a lot of people to, to be mad, to be truly mad, and, and as a society for us to go mad. And, um, you know, again, watching sort of both sides of these culture war debates, you can pick on different things, QAnon or whatever else from one side or the other. Like, intelligent people, they're not dumb. They're not acting in bad faith for the most part. You know, they're you know, they're smart people, think they're doing the right thing, and they've embraced a totally Looney Tunes worldview and want to enforce it, you know, on, uh, on everyone. And I'm trying to pick on the right, by the way, because you can say the same stuff about, you know, wokeism or whatever mm-hmm. on the left is in some ways kind of the corollary, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to, to some of that. So mm-hmm. um, it, it has been on that side sort of depressing to watch, you know, in some cases firsthand, people I know, like, respect, who have PhDs, who are smart, intelligent people, you know, behave like the mob, <laughs> you know, again, on both right and left. And, uh, I don't know where that goes. I mean, it's definitely, I would say the, the worst it's been during my lifetime, at least as far as when I was old enough to pay attention to the news. Um, I've never seen anything quite like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think the part of the problem is that everybody is so focused on this idea of being on the right side of history, of doing the right thing, that they've lost touch with their own uh, capacity to justify anything in the name of doing that. You know, so they've mm-hmm. lost context 
Um, they've, you know, lost any kind of sense of proportionality. Uh, there's people are starting to embrace, at least in small ways, this idea that the the ends justify the means. You know, it's become very tribal, uh, very angry, very hateful. Um, and the very fact that people think they're doing something for a good moral cause is part of what I think is making it worse uh, at this point. So uh, we definitely aren't like, you know, uh, in you know, I don't know, uh, the dark ages or anything at that point, you know, but it has looked like a, a stress test. I would call it it definitely is a stress test mm. on this idea of the sort of arc of history always evolving to something better than what came before. Mm. Um, the last, I would say, seven to 10 years probably has not been that way. Mm. Uh, but we'll see if that changes. Uh, or if it, you know, I, th I think even internationally, people, I think, you know, again, I'm not a political scientist, but what I understand is that, you know, sort of democracy is on a recession, you know, based or not, not an economic recession, but you know, there are more governments are becoming more authoritarian mm. uh, over time, which is sort of a disturbing trend. The, the question becomes, is that trend continue endlessly, you know, not, not endlessly, but, you know, to, to make things worse for a long period of time, or is that a blip and we'll go back into this sort of period of greater rights, greater freedoms, you know, uh, greater democracy worldwide. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. Um, but it is going to take, a, I think, you know, what's happening now is this classic situation where people on the extremes uh, are, begin, are being given a lot more voice, a lot more authority, a lot more attention, and that's preventing, um, I mean, I would like to think that I'm not on the extreme, but maybe people would disagree. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But, you know, but wh whoever is not on the extreme, whoever's sort of in the middle, you know, 90 percent of people who are not like on the far left and far right. Um, I think it's very difficult for them to speak. And you know? well, first, I think of jobs and families and they don't have time to be on Twitter all day. But, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but also they're afraid of saying something and getting I guess the word now is canceled. Right. You know, they're afraid of losing their jobs. Like that sort of. But I think what's going to take is the people in the middle to get up and speak and, and, and be a little bit less afraid of, of the extreme folks um, attacking them, which they will because they're extreme. Um, but uh, yeah, so somehow the center has, a, you know, and by center, I just mean everybody who's not extreme um, mm -hmm. to figure out some way of restoring some sort of discourse and, you know, sense of proportionality that we seem to be losing right now. Mm. Yes. You that's some, this is something you know you were you were mentioning and what you were just talking about and you wrote about in the book, which is do you know insane leaders translate to insane societies? And we can see examples in history of when this happens, of course, with the whole Nazi regime and also just in in perhaps you know much more minor ways nowadays the way that the, there's just so much conformity and mob mentality around mm -hmm. issues and things get so charged and everyone feels so self-righteous. And I, you do see these, this translation um, into societies. And it, and it also, it reminds me of the quote, which the Indian philosopher Jiddu Krishnamurti said, he said, it is no measure of health to be well-adjusted to a profoundly sick society. And I really love that. And I like to remind people of that because I do think that if you're in a society that has essentially gone mad, you don't want to be emotionally stable. It's not a good sign of your mental well-being that you're just like at ease and content and not anxious in a situation like that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I actually think that many you know, and just going back again to the question of what will future historians 
judge us harshly on, I think we can highlight some pretty glaring examples um, of, you know, like for example, what comes to my mind right now is I could see historians in 500 years looking back and, and saying, can you believe children were just starving to death? And then one student might say, well, was there a shortage of food? And then be like, no, no, the food just wasn't distributed to the starving children. Or they'll say, can you believe they, they harnessed nuclear power? And then a student will be like, well, what did they do with it? Did they like provide energy to the world? And they'd be like, no, they just created weapons out of it. Or, you know, and, and I think examples abound here. Um, and for someone to be aware of that, we have to create these boundaries and protect our own personal emotional life. But also, I think it's reasonable that a person would be generally uh, a bit depressed or anxious as their awareness of these types of insane tendencies as their awareness of that increases. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, it, again, I think if you're in that situation where you can kind of see it happening, right, you know, right. so you're, if, so again, there's a sense of like, everything's become very tribal, you know, and if you're in the middle of the tribes, you really can't see it happening, you know, you just see there's the there's the bad people. And then there's the good people and you're one of the good people, right, you know, so that's kind of, and that's probably how our brains are generally kind of wired to work anyway, uh, to a large degree. Um, but if you're not, you know, if you're in the sort of sense of like, well, everybody's a little bit, a little bit crazy right now. Um, I, I think it can be difficult to watch that. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speaking firsthand. I mean, it is, it is difficult to watch, you know, um, you know, some of this stuff going on, mm-hmm. uh, because you want to keep things bending in the direction of, 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 of evolving more positively. And when things seem to be slipping back, you know, again, if you're sort of watching it in another country, you know, for instance, you know, Russia for a while there thought oh, Russia's going to be a democracy. That's wonderful. And then, you know, Putin took over and it didn't happen. You know, that's, that's sad, you know. Um, but then what's happening in your own country, you know, that is you know, a lot more visceral. It's a lot more, you know, immediate. Um, right. Both situations are sad, but one is a lot more, you know, relevant to your own, uh, you know, kind of situation. But yeah, uh, um, yeah. but then, then it kind of becomes an issue of what do you do with it, you know. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is this sense of, um, and again, I, I, I can understand it, you know, having experienced 2020 like everybody else did. That was just a, a weird year. And a lot of it was outside of our control. I mean, there's COVID virus and all kinds of other things that were going on that, you know, you know, was, you know it really was this sort of non-human enterprise that was affecting a lot of what was going on. But then the kind of how we dealt with it um, in a way was obviously not very efficient, which, which tells us a lot about, you know, how things work. Um, just the fact it became a polarized issue, you know. Right. Our, our mask tyranny or, you know, or whatever the hell else is, you know, everybody's arguing about, you know, right. it, it, where did the vac, where did, where did the virus come from and all this kind of stuff is, mm-hmm. you know, all these questions are being asked publicly, but in non-scientific, non-empirical ways. And that's kind of hard, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, uh, to watch. And, and I think unsettling, you know, because there also is this sense of, of uh, where does this end, you know, does this get worse, you know, especially if people are on one side or, making Nazi references and on the other side, making, you know, whatever communist China references, you know, it starts to get kind of nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the danger is, I think, for, for you know, societies is in that moment. So, so we can say we're experiencing at least a little bit of a crisis moment. It may not be as bad as some other cultures have experienced our history, but we're in kind of a crisis moment. 
uh, and we have been for at least the last couple of years, you know, there will be this temptation, I think, for a lot of people for that, again, strong leader. You know, we want someone to come in and fix it, you know, uh, and that's that rolling of the dice, you know, uh, that, you know, we could all work together and try to fix it, but that's slow and messy. Um, and there's no guarantee that's going to work. Um, or we could roll the dice and have some more authoritarian figure, authoritarian figure, um, step in, uh, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's kind of what happened on the right. I, I know you probably don't want to get too political with these things. I, you know, I'm pretty much on the record, not being a Trump fan. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that's kind of what happened, you know, that people from, I'm not, you know, criticizing conservatives. I think, you know, they had their reasons for why they were unhappy with the way the direction was going in the country. And, and I, I, in many ways, agree with some of those, you know. Um, but, you know, the, the solution there <laughs> I think made things worse uh, in many respects. Unfortunately, that was one of the stress tests for the country. Unfortunately, the country, you know, passed through that one uh, successfully. Um, you know, and again, I see some of the same inclinations or some of the arguments on the left, you know, we need to change the constitution. We need to get rid of the filibuster. We need to get rid of the electoral college, all kinds of other stuff. Um, and that all makes me nervous too, you know, uh, and, uh, what was it one? I, I saw somebody online talk about, you know, that, uh, the Democrats should get rid of the filibuster when they're in charge of the Senate and then bring it back when they, just before they get voted out. <laughs> just like, oh, oh my God, no, no, no. That's a terrible, terrible idea. Um, you know, and I don't, it wasn't like a politician would say this is just like a regular person, but you know, it's, it's, that, it's that kind of mentality. Like right. somehow we can jury rig the system to always be in our favor and it will never backfire in our face. Uh, mm -hmm. It will backfire in your face. And if you sort of endorse these types of your dirty politics, if you will, um, you'll get politicians that will do it and they'll increasingly, the power will not flow down to you. You know, the power will not flow down to marginalized communities. If that's who you think you're helping, the power will flow up to those people who are willing to do those sorts of strategies in mm. order to gain power. It'll always end up, power will always go in that direction if you give it to politicians, um, never down to the people writ large or not down to marginalized communities and not down to people that are impoverished or indigenous or whatever else uh, mm. is, uh, is happening. So it is, it, but it is, it is it, yeah. So it is uncomfortable to watch smart people. These are smart people. Um, you know, endorse these radical, radical change, I think, you know, sort of the comment on the left you hear a lot now, sort of endorsing this stuff and realize that radical change is, oh, I can't, I can't off the top of my head think of an example in history where radical change worked. Mm. Uh, it usually ends up in something much, much worse, um, you know, and that's just the, the, the truth of it. You know, that's frustrating. I get it. People want big changes, but, you know, working slowly, incrementally within the system tends to come up with better outcomes. Than trying to jam something through without thinking of it um you know i can i can uh hear kind of the the voice of the devil's advocate in my head now go for it yeah, yeah. and and i suppose that in in his like i suppose like the, the civil rights act comes to mind that i i guess you can argue that that was a fairly radical change and objectively a good thing that made life better for everybody i would say yeah. so I suppose if we can identify objectively immoral conditions that would call for radical changes. Yeah. So that, that comes to mind, but I also see what you're saying. And I also see how making it possible for a leader or a party to make radical changes without the consent yeah. of the people 
could be disastrous and has been disastrous in the past. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the other side of like the civil rights movement is you could say that it actually was in many ways way too slow. Right. You know, yeah, exactly. kind of like, you know the the massive lag in time mm. between the end of the Civil War and mm. you know the civil rights movement basically a hundred years later. That was an incredibly yeah. slow process. So I, I also want to make sure I'm not saying that that's lovely either. You know mm. that we just like deprive people of rights because we don't want to go too fast. Right. You know? Right. I mean that's not, that's that's definitely not what I'm advocating for. You know right. either. But you know. The actual, you know, process of civil rights, you know, was about a ten-year period. It was the fifties and sixties, you know, before it really kind of came into its uh, fore in the late, you know, in the late sixties under, yeah. you know, LBJ. But, but, I, but I also agree with you that that was like an unambiguously. I mean, some, I'm, you know, it's always some people going to deny that this is a big deal. That you know, um, but I think you know, it was an unambiguously obvious problem. There were clearly separate laws, you know, the separate ways people were treated. Uh, in society at the time, you know, the only the argument wasn't whether really that was true it was whether it was good, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's, you know, this kind of like, again, humans are always capable of constructing arguments for why their worldview is the good one, you know, um, but but in terms of like, you know, was there segregation, you know, that, that was an objectively true thing, uh, you know, measurable, you know, no, nobody denied that that, that mm-hmm. was you know, in, in, in place. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So there, there are always, you know, these kinds of exceptions of, of, uh, of things like that. Um, but, uh, but you definitely want to be wary of uh, the, the, the problem that then comes is, and I see this in science too, is once you get like one of these exceptions that things, you know, kind of went, yeah, we, yeah, we agree. Like, you know, the, the 10 year process for civil rights was probably pretty quick um, between the fifties and sixties. And resulted in a massive positive, right? You know, um, uh, that we all would, again, sort of unambiguous agree about. And the temptation becomes then to compare everything we want to do today to that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and say, this is just like the civil rights movement, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and then everything becomes that thing. Uh, and I see this in, in science with, with cigarettes and lung cancer. Uh, so everybody thinks their field of study is cigarettes and lung cancer. Uh, you know, this is just as important as cigarettes and lung cancer. This is going to be as groundbreaking for public health as cigarettes and lung cancer. I've seen it in video game research. That's how I got, inv- that's how I got involved, people comparing that to cigarettes and lung cancer. Um, you know, so I think you have to resist that temptation as well, because you actually can get this kind of like weird um, backfire effect where people's temptation to be the next LBJ, if you will, uh, or be the next civil rights advocate that, you know, is... Um, you know, going to make them, you know, uh, clearly a martyr for history or, or whatever we want to think of it is, is, is going to lead them to radically bad decisions, you know. So for every civil rights movement, there are, you know, I don't know how many, you know, a dozen French revolutions, cultural revolutions, you know, Bolshevik revolutions, you know, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that is the that is the danger of radical change, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you will. I mean, sometimes you might say, yes, it is necessary. Sometimes a big problem comes up and you just got to fix it today. You know, you mm-hmm. can't, you know, maybe global warming is an example of that, you know. If the uh, you know if we're going to hit a crisis point in ten years, we only got ten years, you know. And I'm not saying that's true, by the way. I want to be clear. I don't, I don't know anything about climate change, uh, but if that were the case, um, then you know that puts a time time frame on it uh, as well. So yeah, uh, calls for radical changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So sometimes sometimes it might be necessary, but my point is more that people is to resist taking on that sort of moral mantle, if you will. People will be tempted to think anything that they want to do needs this sort of change. And again, sort of like the, the history of it 
is it tends to result in many more disasters and the handing of authority to people uh, that we may not have wanted to hand authority to. And again, I would say easily, you know, dozen or so or dozens of examples of that turning out badly for everyone that turned out well. Mm. Uh, that's that rolling of the dice, right? You know, that's the whole thing. Same thing with an authoritarian. You can roll the dice and sometimes you end up with this benevolent dictator, mm. if you will. More often than you don't, <laughs> you know, is the, is, the, is the truth of it. So, yeah. Do you think, do you think there's anything to the idea that people just want a change and that they're like, I'm thinking about the psychology of the willingness to roll the dice. And I think this was the general um, ethos, I guess, of electing Donald Trump. And that was almost what he campaigned on was that he was going, he was different. He was breaking the status quo. And so I'm curious about your thoughts of like, how much of the motivation to roll the dice on someone who's clearly not normal for better or for worse is based in um, uh, discontent with the status quo. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. A lot of it. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. And, and of course that's another example of, you know, radical change, if you will, he was a radical change, you know, and, and some people probably would still say that it was worth it. I mean, we have a conservative leaning Supreme court, um, at this point. And some people might say like those four years were worth getting that, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, but uh, you know, the question again is at what cost, um, you know, necessarily, but uh, yeah, you, you definitely tend to see people's willingness to sort of, you know, roll the dice, if you will, um, when they feel discontent, when they feel that they're losing control mm-hmm. uh, over society um, and when they feel like they're not being heard mm-hmm. um, and when they feel like they're being shamed. Yeah, so those are kind of like the the recipe for let's let's it's, dwell on that for a second. So so yeah. say that again. When when they feel like they're losing control, losing when, control, they're discontented. They're losing. They perceive themselves as losing control because mm-hmm. we can argue whether they really are or not. But right. you know, they perceive themselves as losing control. Um, they uh, do not feel heard, uh, so they feel like the politicians aren't paying attention to them, um, and they feel shamed. You know, in other words, they're being told that they're terrible mm. uh, uh, and such. So the more you rely on those sorts of or, or, the, or the more that sort of scenario evolves um, for a certain group of people, um, the more agitated they will become, you know, and the more willing they'll be, um, they will be to embrace a quote unquote strong leader who will f- promise to fix things, um, you know, for them. Uh, I think the challenge we have right now is that, you know, a lot of people on both sides feel this way, you know, so you can kind of look at like, you know, race politics, you know, for instance, the United States, that a lot of people in minority communities feel like they're not being heard, that they're not taken seriously, that um, they're being told that they're more negative than the majority population, you know, that's that, that's that shame uh, that's creeping in there as well. But on the other hand, you know, particularly poor rural whites feel the same way. They feel like they're being told they're a basket of deplorables and that, you know, um, nobody's paying attention to, you know, epidemic levels of suicide and opiate addiction in their communities. And, and they're being, you know, if they, if they try to talk about it, they're told that they're, you know, their, their views don't matter and stuff. So you end up with, you know, increasing segments of the population that all feel like they're sort of the victims, if you will, of, um, you know, a political system that is not working for them. And uh, at the moment, our political system is kind of putting them against each other, right? You know, so there's 
the Democrats are, that's, that's that classic line from Hillary Clinton, it's the basket of deplorables, right? You know, whereas the right, you know, has a history of race baiting, right? You know, the sort of idea of being sort of tough on crime or whatever else, sort of creating stereotypes of racial minorities. Um, and so, so you can turn people against each other uh, based on race, gender. Um, usually they try to avoid class because that's probably the unifying element to a lot of this. But, um, you know, so there is a sense of trying to, you know, again, I don't know how much of it is intentional necessarily, but that does seem to be the way that a lot of sort of elites, you know, function. There's this whole idea. There's, uh, there's a book by Michael Land about so like the new class war, and it kind of makes this argument that sort of elites, if you will, the managerial class, I think is what he calls it, uh, which includes academics, by the way. <laughs> um, but that, you know, there's kind of this, you know, whether it's intentional or unintentional sort of method of dividing everybody in the sort of the middle and the lower classes against each other. So they're always, you know, um, you know, they're always working against each other, whether it's because they're, there's race issues or gender issues or whatever, whatever else, you know, red versus blue, all that kind of stuff. Um, where the winners of that are always the people that are the elites, you know, if you will, that they can play that game and, ma- and maintain their control. The more you just divide and conquer, the more you can divide people. Yeah, okay. the more you can maintain control over them. And, and, mm. and I, I've become sort of sympathetic to that, that, that worldview that I think mm. that, you know, I think you know, if you kind of look at, you know, poor, you know, or indigenous people or people who are struggling in, in, in marginalized communities, whether they're, you know, black, white, Latino, uh, etc. That, that in some ways they have, I would, I mean, you know, again, I'm, I'm apparently part of this managerial class, so maybe I'm naive here, but, you know, that, that other than argument, they have more things in common. Uh, they would all benefit from healthcare. They'd all benefit, you know, access to good paying jobs, well-paying jobs and, you know, and, uh, you know, getting them to hate each other based on race or that kind of stuff is, is stupid, you know, um, you know, so, but if they actually came together and saw that despite their differences, they actually had many things in common, then they might actually turn on this managerial class. Um, and, um, you know, and that would be a problem for them. At least that's the argument is one particular book that I thought was, was pretty that's interesting. A strong argument. I mean, it yeah. <laughs> rings true to me. And it's interesting, you know, that academics are included in this elite class because I see why in a sense. And I also perhaps would add the qualifier that academics are like the broke elites <laughs> relative, <laughs> relative to the, to the wealthy elites. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in that way, you know, I think class is like you said, unifying. And, and in that way, even as an academic, I would feel much more um, connected and relatable to people who are in my same economic class mm-hmm even if our education levels are different than I would feel to, you know, the Jeff Bezos of the world and the wealthy elite. So yeah, that, that's interesting. Well, I don't want to cut this short, but we have our part two of our conversation and awesome. perhaps some of the topics that we're covering now will spill over into that. For people who are listening now, I just love you and I appreciate your attention and that you want to listen to these long form conversations. I appreciate it. And I hope you tune into part two of our conversation on the impact of violent video games, what people think it is and what it might really be. So Dr. Ferguson, thank you. And I am excited for another conversation. Fantastic, yeah, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me today. My pleasure.